Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have author and consultant, trainer, coach, Lisa Magnuson, who is a specialist in complex enterprise sales. She is the author of two fantastic books. One is called The Top Sales Leaders Playbook, How to Win 5X Deals Repeatedly, and the other is The Top Seller Advantage, Powerful Strategies to Build Long-Term Executive Relationships. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excellent. Lisa, would you mind giving the audience a quick 90 seconds of who you are and your journey to get to where you are? Yeah, I have spent my entire career in in sales, and I have really spent a lot of that around big opportunities and big accounts. And for the past 15 years, I've spent all my time working with sales VPs and their teams, helping them identify, develop, and land big, big deals. And by big, big deals, you mean? I have sort of coined the term 5X deals about five times your average deal size. So, you know, if your average deal size is 100,000, it'd be a half million dollar deal. Obviously, every company and industry measures them a little bit differently, but that, in general, that seems to work. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. And do you have any particular verticals that you'd like to work in? Over the course of my time, I think I have literally worked in every vertical and have funny stories <laughs> to uh, share. Government, you know, technology, security, healthcare, insurance. So it just depends on my client mix at the time. But I will tell you, Marcus, every single client, new client, they're like, well, our industry is really different. You know, it's just, it's just completely different. And like everyone else's. Yeah. And then I'm like, I know, I know, you know, it'll be okay. (laughs) And then it's exactly the same. (laughs) Absolutely. Everyone says that their business is unique, but the problem is that actually people are wired the same. So the attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, systems, tactics, they work as long as they're playing to the hard wiring of the brain. Totally. I mean, you might have to adjust a little bit, and I do, but uh, yes, in general, you know, <laughs> the same things work. Okay, well, let's kick off. What are the four most common questions that you get asked about 5Xing deals? Yeah, so a, one, a common question that I get all the time is, how do I know if my prospect is, is a 5X deal? You know, if it could turn into a 5X deal, that's a super common question. The other question is, what is an account team? I use the word account team all the time. People go, what, what does that really mean? How do we get started? It's a long journey. And so, you know, a lot of people, especially right now when we're sort of overwhelmed, it's like, how do you start? You know, how do you get, how do you start down that path? How many times do you need to sort of meet? You know, how long is this going to take? What, it, what, what does it really involve? I've had teams that go, great, let's schedule our strategy session and then we're good to go. <laughs> it's like, well, how does one know if you've got a 5X account? So just with the general rule of does it seem like it's going to be different than your average sales process? And, and so, you know, are there going to be more people needed on your side? Are more people involved on the customer side? Is it going to take a little bit longer? Is it complex in some way? Those are some of the questions, and I actually have a a scoring criteria that really helps salespeople and and the sales leaders really determine 
if it qualifies for a 5X deal. And that scoring criteria, that scorecard is way more than just revenue because a lot of times a sales VP will go, give me your top five prospects or give me your top, what, what you think are going to be really big deals for the year. And it's all based on revenue. And that is certainly one of the criteria, but there's a lot of other things. Maybe maybe the account has a you know, big multiplier effect. In other words, if you got this account, it's gonna, it's gonna be your banner account and it's gonna attract other accounts. Or maybe the account's gonna open up a new geography for your company. Or maybe you know, it's going to really put your competitor in a bad position. So there, there's a lot of things that are in that scorecard that help salespeople go, you know, is this, is this potentially a 5X deal? And is it worth the time for us to, to go after it? We always look at enterprise accounts as having a, being a marketplace in and of themselves. Yes. So if you penetrate an account, the obvious is to tackle the organic growth within it in terms of selling more of the same, different stuff, extend projects, that kind of thing. But the more imaginative ones might look at the subsidiaries and parent and sister companies, but very few of them look at the, poten- uh, the broader potential of their alumni, their supply chain, their joint venture partners, their alliances, and importantly, the customer's customer. So when you're scorecarding, are those the kind of things that you're looking at? You know, the the scorecard does include, you know, sort of what are those expansion opportunities? But remember, the scorecard's kind of at the beginning, so you don't always know those things. One One of the pieces in my playbook is expansive planning around finding expansion opportunities, but that comes a little bit later. The scorecard also includes, is the customer committed to solve this problem? Because if you're going to march down a, a path that might take, you know, nine months, 12 months, 18 months, you know, the customer's got to be marching down that path with you or the prospect. And it could be a customer or a prospect, by the way. Uh, and are they committed? And is the, is the account team committed to stay together that whole time? That takes a lot of discipline and focus and accountability to put in those kinds of long-term efforts. But account teams that have won in the past understand that it's worth it. This raises the obvious question, which is, you know, if you are in, the, in this for the long haul, planning is utterly essential. What kind of pushback are you getting from your clients about planning, about keeping those teams together, making sure that they're working in a coordinated fashion? Yeah. So, you know, my current book, the Top Sales Leader Playbook, it's got 16 plays, four parts. And and the first part is about sales leadership. And one of the parts is also about culture. And so culture and sales leadership have to sort of be in place to help account teams go the distance. And, you know, it starts with really the sales leader designating that account quarterback and that account team. And saying, you guys are going to come together as a temporary team, you know, so it's not a sales team in the traditional sense. They all might work for different managers and they probably will, but they're going to come together as a temporary team. And the sales leader has to sort of designate and enable that team to move forward. And then they also have to stay involved and that there has to be a culture that supports that. 
a culture that supports meeting on an account opportunity over time. I call it war room work, but it could also be called account strategy work to really do the work that's necessary to go after and win a 5X deal. That makes a lot of sense. But again, it sounds to me like it's really important to have very committed leadership. And by and large, in my experience, leadership tends to dip in and out. They're often distracted by the fires they have to fight. How do you make sure that they're doing their bit? Yeah, so before I I wrote the book, I interviewed 41 sales VPs, live interviews. And I asked them about their priorities, about their challenges, about what they would want to see in a playbook like this. And two things that were interesting. One is, you know, they have twice as many challenges as they do priorities. And I've been a sales VP several times. So I get it, but that's just accelerating. And so you're right. They are, they're trying to deal with all these challenges. They're trying to get after their priorities. They're very distracted. But one of the interviews, one of my interviewees, it was a client from a while back. She said, are you going to have you know, like yellow flags and red flags in your playbook in, in, in each of the plays. And I'm like, well, I hadn't thought of it, but what a great idea. And so each play has yellow and red flags and remedies because you're exactly right. You can get into, you can be, you know, on your second war room meeting or third or 10th and people are kind of starting to lose focus. They're not doing the things that they agreed to do at the past one. And that sales leader needs to come in and and really show some strong leadership. But if they're not doing that, that's a yellow flag or a red flag. So, you know, what do you do? The account quarterback, if they've been designated, they can bring that person in, even though it might be their manager or their manager's manager and say, you know what, we really need some strong leadership right now. Let's kick off the meeting by reinforcing what we're doing, where we are and where we're going. And, you know, can bring the, so that's just one idea. There's lots of different ways to make sure that everybody stays in the boat or in the water moving forward. And if you're not seeing that kind of executive support, what happens? The red flag that turns into a showstopper, if there's no remedy, they just lose steam. And so, you know, that opportunity just starts to lag and nothing happens you know, and maybe, maybe they're the, you know, they lose to the competition or it was, you know, a big opportunity that just doesn't ever materialize. And, you know, I've seen that happen plenty of times because, you know, to really go after these opportunities, it really takes everybody committed for the duration. So I'd be really curious to find out the kind of conversations you have where you need to enter into constructive conflict with leadership if they're not playing their part? So, you know, when sales VPs bring me into that process, you know, as an outside kind of adjunct member of the account team, it makes it easier. And the smart sales VPs will have a resource like that. It could be internal, maybe external, uh, you know, like the ones that I get involved because, you know, I'm like the insurance policy for them. And so bringing them back in, having those conversations, making sure the team is focused on what they need to be focused on moving forward. Every war room meeting starts with reviewing, 
the commitments from the prior meeting? Did they happen? What did we learn? What do we need to change based on what we learned? So when I'm involved, it is easier for them. And they can, you know, they could have an internal person play that same role, but they ha you have to put whatever things in place you need. You know, do you need strategy expertise? Do you need accountability expertise? Do you need, you know, does the, does the account quarterback need a little support because they're not, you know, coordinating a big team is not their core skill set? What's an account quarterback? Um, remember, as a Brit, we don't really understand American football. <laughs> it's the account leader. It's that person. And you know what? Usually it's obvious who that person is going to be by job title, but it's not always obvious because sometimes, so it could be the account manager, the account executive, the global account manager, the national account manager, all different titles. But also sometimes when these big opportunities, maybe the sales manager is that lead person or maybe the sales VP. And so one of the big suggestions and plays in the playbook about designating that account quarterback is really making it clear who that person is going to be and what their responsibilities are going to be. As a matter of fact, the whole account team needs to have roles and responsibilities. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if roles and responsibilities aren't clearly assigned and two or more people think that it's the other person's job, it never gets done. It never gets um, done. We tend to talk about the captain of the sale. Is that the same function that you're talking about with the account quarterback? One of the steps, like in my playbook, I've got examples for all these things, the steps, you know, the, the formats. When you bring that account team together, you decide who, who, who are the people that need to come together to go after this large opportunity. And some people are going to be kind of temporary team members. They're going to come in and out. Some are core. They need to be kind of in all the strategy sessions. But, you know, one of the things is just quickly going through. It doesn't need to be like overly laborious, but quickly going through and go, who's leading this team? Who's going to be the person that is kind of on the outside that pushes back a little bit? I don't like the term devil's advocate, but I kind of, that's what I'm talking about. You know, somebody that challenges the strategy, challenges the thinking, you know, challenges the team. Who's, who's going to do that? Who's going to capture all the, all of our commitments and agreements and keep those visible to everybody and put them in a place where everyone can find them? You know, all those kind of core functions of a team, you know, and it's a, it's a finite list. This is a half hour discussion. Those all get captured in the, in the account strategy document. I call it a strategy brief. And so it's there. It's part of that temporary team commitment. And it's clear. Who's what and what are they, what are they in charge of doing? Very interesting. I mean, one thing I, I like to do with my clients is I have the white team who are defending the opportunity. And then the red team's job is to pull it apart. Now, a lot of salespeople don't like that process, but what it does is it prevents them from pursuing non-opportunities, the wrong type of opportunities or opportunities they can't win or shouldn't win. Now, how do you get that type of buy-in from the sales team that they are going to enter into this constructive conflict and they're going to have to be able to defend their opportunity robustly because it's going to be criticized robustly and constructively. How, how do you get that buy-in? Well, part of it is 
figuring out who that account team is. And then the account team really scores the opportunity together. So it's a little different than you're talking about with the teams, because, you know, I think what you're talking about is, is this even an opportunity? Did you properly qualify it? Should we even be working it? So, so, you know, scoring the opportunity sort of sorts that out. So now it's, it's not like an oppositional team. It's, but there does need to be a person or people that are designated to ask challenging questions as you go forward. So it's, it's not, are we going to go forward? That decision gets made when you score the account, unless something changes. But it's the person that said, you know, as you're doing the, as you're developing the account strategies, the person goes, well, have we thought of this? Or I'm not sure if that's exactly right. What about this? And so it's not adversarial as much as it's helpful. And everybody knows that that's that person's job. And then it's not just that person's job. The entire account team then kind of becomes strategic thinkers and understand and wanting to get it right. You know, one of the things I tell account teams all the time is if you have this environment, everybody on the same page wanting to win, then you can have this really good debate and conflict because everybody has the same goal. And also the account team will get it right. Like practical example, let's say you you need an executive sponsor. You're going after this big opportunity, but you don't have a strong executive sponsor or maybe any executive sponsor. And almost every big deal that I've been involved with requires that. Those are easy meetings to get, you know, let alone somebody that's going to go to bat for you. So how do you do that? What's the right time? How do, you, how do you approach that person? How do you get that meeting? Who goes on that meeting? What's the agenda on that meeting? Well, there's a lot of discussion and debate, but the account team, if they, if they make that a priority for their strategy you know, during one of their war room sessions or strategy sessions, they will get it right. They will figure it out with healthy discussion and debate. You know, It's like, this is the person, here's probably our best shot. John, you're you're probably in the best position to do it. Can you take the lead? That kind of discussion. You know, the account team is very powerful if they're directed properly. Well, wars are won in the planning. They're executed on the battlefield. And the reality is that salespeople have a tendency, unless they are well-trained, unless they're disciplined, to wing it. Now, when you consider the cost of pursuit, I consider that to be an act of gross negligence on the part of the managers for allowing that and an act of gross misconduct on the part of the salesperson for squandering those kind of resources. For an enterprise pursuit, you could be running into tens or even hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars to pursue a large opportunity. If it's as strategic as a 5X deal, this is going to take your business to the next level. It's incumbent on the organization to hold the salespeople to be thorough and meticulous in their planning. So what are the documents, the tools that uh, you recommend that salespeople are using and how do you make sure that they use them? Because historically, I've seen an awful lot of planning tools out there that result in a three-day offsite that basically get shoved in the back of the car and never see the light of day except when they're going through a review with their boss. Yeah. So, you know, in my book, you know, one of the, one of the plays is around methodology and, you know, so I lay out a methodology and 
tools and this, you know, there's examples of the tools in there. But really, my message is in the book, pick a methodology, pick, pick one, it doesn't have to be mine. I'm just, of course, I would put mine in my book, because I have been refining it for 15 years. And I think it's awesome. But pick any of them, all of them are pretty good, if not great. So it's just, I, I think the thing is, have a methodology. And then you have to commit to that methodology. So you're exactly like, as an example, one of my, um, I was working with a client recently and it was a $40 million win, $40 million. So this is a client, they, their deals were big, but this was a, this was for them even a huge deal. So, you know, we started with the prospect that they had, it wasn't a current customer prospect, had some negative perceptions of my client. They already had somebody they worked with that they really liked, and there were some geographical challenges. And so we scored that. We pulled together the account team. We scored that opportunity, and we thought, you know what? Even though this is in no way, shape, or form going to be easy or a laydown, we think that it has all, all the right components. It's a great fit. And so it's scored high enough to say, you know what, we're going to commit to this. We're going to, we're going to march down that methodology path. Salespeople hate the word methodology and process and planning, <laughs> but methodology just means how are we going to do it? Well, you know, what, how are we going to do it? What, what, what are those steps? And so, you know, we did that. We started going down that path. We mapped out the relationships that we had and we figured out the relationships that we didn't have, but we probably knew we were going to need like an executive sponsor is a perfect example. You know, who's, who's that, per, who is that person? Well, you know, first we got to find out, then we got to figure out how we can connect with that person. Then we got to figure out how to help them to see what we can bring to their company and be an advocate for us. You know, so this all takes time. Then we mapped out our SWAT, our pre-strategy SWAT, you know, what, what all those components. Then we sort of mapped out our strategy and we did tons of pre-call planning. Every interaction had meticulous pre-call planning based on our strategy. You know, flash forward nine months, they won that deal, even overcoming all those hurdles, competitors, geography, perception, they won that deal. And within 90 days, that new customer gave them a referral for another opportunity, brand new opportunity for their company. So yeah, it was hard. We spent a lot of time in strategy meetings and you so nicely said it's like strategy, you know, kind of behind the closed doors and then implementing with the customer doing both over nine months. And I think actually nine months was short given the, how large that was, but that deal was a game changer for their company, $40 million, brand new game changer. This then raises another question. One of the rules of thumb that I have is if any one account accounts for more than 12%, one-eighth of your revenues, then it becomes a threat. So I'm really interested in how you help your clients then step up their game so that that victory doesn't turn into a liability. You've probably seen this too. You know, many times like bigger companies that are going out to RFP, they ask that question. One of the questions in RFP questions is, if you were to get our business, what percent would our account represent? Because not only is that a liability for, for, for the company, it's a liability for your new customer too. So 
liability for that falls on both sides. And, you know, when that's an issue, that is exactly the type of thing that comes up when you're doing this strategy work. Because one of, one of the pieces of the methodology is a risk assessment. You know, what is it going to take for us to get this business? Can we support this business over the long haul? What's it going to cost? What risks are there to our company? I mean, that's one of the pieces of the strategy brief is an internal risk assessment. So basically, the methodology, the strategy, what I call the, the strategy brief, this is what I tell account teams when we start. Every piece just systematically improves your likelihood of success because mapping relationships, that improves your likelihood of success because you're assessing all your relationships. You're assessing the ones you have, the ones you need, doing a SWOT looking internal and external, not just strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, but looking at them from the customer's perspective as well as your own perspective. That brings up things you hadn't thought of before, doing that risk assessment. So it's like every piece of it improves your chance of success. It's not magic. I know you're a strong believer in these wind themes. What talk to me about those? So wind themes are the intersection of your prospects or clients' priorities and your strengths, the strengths that you can bring. And they're not necessarily product strengths, they're like a level up from that. And you know what? Right now, wind themes are more important than ever. Because right now, nobody has time to talk to a salesperson about anything that's not smack dab in their priorities, in their priority set. I was speaking to Todd Camp from Camp Negotiation. And one of the things that they teach, which is, again, very closely aligned with us, is that you have mission and purpose. And when you ask people about their mission and purpose, they invariably make it about themselves. Actually, mission is what the customer needs and wants. Purpose is how they want it resolved and delivered. And when you start with that mindset and you work backwards from there, then it's far more likely that you are going to find that intersection between what they need and where your strengths lie. And very quickly identify that actually you aren't the right supplier. So you can withdraw and disqualify early and not get involved in a pursuit that's wrong for either or both sides. That seems to be really important. I could not agree more. It's, you know, and it's always amazing to me. Like I just was working with an account team that um, that was doing an RFP where they have a very strong chance of, of, of moving forward in the, in the process. They had kind of done some things before great fit, you know, kind of a lot of the ingredients. And, and so they called me in, they were already had started their, their RFP. And, and I said, well, what are your win themes? Because if you're going to do a proposal or a presentation or a request for a proposal, you know, respond to an RFP or an RFI or RFQ, you know, you have to have those win themes nailed down. You have to, because otherwise there's no way to differentiate yourself. And so, you know, they're like, ah, we didn't think about that. I'm like, well, okay, we have to go back and we have to figure those things out. What are this prospect's priorities? Why are they important? And then what could you do or bring? What are you bringing to the table that helps them? 
And what evidence do you have to back that up? And especially in an RFP, that kind of four-part thinking is really important because all your answers to all your questions should touch on one of the win themes that you developed. And I kind of, rec- I like the number three for win themes. Sometimes I get involved with teams that are, you know, super complex and they talk me into five. But, you know, what I tell teams is like after the customer reads your response or goes to your presentation, you know, if you ask them, what are the three things that were memorable to you? and they tell you what you thought the win themes were, you nailed it. If they're just not sure, you didn't nail it. (laughs) It's really interesting. Uh, My coach sent me uh, a little maxim today, uh, or uh, last week, sorry, which is complicated solutions are only valued by the people who create them. Everyone (laughs) else has simple solutions. Um, And he's so right. I'm uh, I'm working on a massive project at the moment, and I was talking him through it. And uh, his only response was, if you could only do 50%, what, which is the 50% you keep? And I suddenly realized that I'd fallen into the trap of overcomplicating. Okay, so tell me this. What are the three most important questions that people do not ask you, but they should? I'm going to put those into a contemporary framework. To me, right now, If you are a salesperson or a sales manager or a sales VP, the question that you should be asking yourself is, you know, with this global pandemic, what is going to change? I just spent, I was supposed to be in Taos, New Mexico over the last three days, beautiful Taos, New Mexico, in a three-day planning meeting with my board of advisors. And instead, we were in a three-day Zoom meeting (laughs) doing the same things. But one of the things we did was contingency planning. And it was on day three yesterday, on a Sunday, (laughs) on a five-hour Zoom meeting. Anyway, but, you know, really looking at, okay, right now, you know, what is, what are the high impact, the low impact opportunities and risks that we can identify? And how do we make sure we're thinking economic skill set, social, technological, you know, all those sort of things. We're thinking broadly. And for salespeople and sales managers and and sales VPs, and I'm just working with one of my teams right now on, on this, one of my groups is, you know, where did you get cut short right now? If you got cut short because you can only conduct your your business through one-on-one live meetings, and you don't know how to do that a different way, you got cut short. So now's the time to shore it up. And one of the things that I think people, a lot of people are still caught short on, and the curtain has now dropped, is if you are only focused on your products and services, like if all your questions are really about you, and all your presentations are about you, and your RFP responses are about you, that's not going to work anymore. It already wasn't going to work, but now the curtain has dropped. And if that is you, you got to change. You got to change now. Like I went through an RFP with, with another client and they're pretty good in this area, but I just showed them, I, you know, we were talking about wind themes and they understand and they, you know, they were getting it, but I go, let's go through your response. Every answer started with them. Every answer. I go, so that's not, those aren't wind themes. Every answer needs to start with your prospect, talking about your prospect's priorities, and then how you can help them. 
And here's some examples as to where you've done that before or a statistic or endorsement or some evidence. So that is, I know that's kind of just one, but to me, that's like a big question. It's like we, we have got cut short as a global economy. And, you know, what does that mean for you as a sales professional? And now is a time to shore it up. Never waste a good crisis. And what I'm seeing, this is my fifth recession in my life. One or two were, were when I was younger or uh, first entered the workplace. But this is the third major one that I've had since I've been in sales. And what I've realized is that adversity doesn't create weakness, it exposes it. And I see this as a massive opportunity. I, personally, I think this is a blessing in disguise because real sales professionals will rise to the top and yes. will give real sales pros an opportunity to excel, differentiate and come out of this stronger and they will see a massive acceleration. The order takers, the passive types, the, the people who wing it, I think they are in for a horrific shock because... Yeah. Smart businesses will see this as an opportunity to cull the dead wood. They should be, in my opinion, leaderships should take greater care and value sales more, which means that they need to start with their management layer. Their management layer needs to be much, much better because we did a research study, Sounder Research Center did a research study in 2019 and the conclusion was only 6% of managers are qualified to be in a sales management role globally. It's terrifying. Only 13% of sales teams worldwide hit quota last year. 44% of individuals and only 13% of teams as a whole hit quota. Lower than other statistics I've seen. That's crazy. Well, I think what will happen is that 13% will probably hold quite close to that number. I think they'll see a bit of a drop, but the 44% I expect to see being absolutely nailed to the floor because they're not ready. They're not, they're not actually selling. What they are is they're opportunists who take orders. And so the real challenge here, I think, is how do we use this as an opportunity to clear out the deadwood, emphasize the critical importance and develop managers and then really focus on the acquisition of raw talent, not necessarily recruiting for experience or historical results, but for the right habits, the right attitudes, beliefs, values, their ability to adapt, their ability to be resilient, and great planning habits. And then create a culture where you're allowed to put that time in and you're not wasting it, faffing about producing pointless reports of information that nobody uses. The only people who are remotely interested in it are the audit teams, but it doesn't actually help sales. So coming off my soapbox, my question, my question is this, what are your hopes for the aftermath of this crisis? You know, in my world where you have to do those things, you have to be more mindful, you have to be a team player, you have to, you can't get away with just winging it for any important sales meeting or call or RFP, you have to use win themes, you have to do research. In my world, I just think my world's going to get better because I agree with you. You know, 
if you if, if you can't cut the the muster with that, you're not going to you're going to get cut loose. And so what's going to happen is because I always work with the best people. If you have a 5x opportunity, it's going to be the best team. You know, I work with the A teams and I think the A teams are just going to keep getting better. And I think people's receptivity to getting better is going to be improved. You know, when I do training and I don't do training all the time, but, but I'm always doing some training. One of the things I ask people is what, you know, what have you done to, to grow your skill sets? What books have you read? What webinars have you attended? What experiences have you created for yourselves? And a lot of times I just kind of get blank stares. It's like, you know, one of the things we talked about before your show was, you know, what are you, what is your passion? It's like my passion as a sales profession is for the sales profession is like invest in yourself, you know, to be a professional. It's like attend webinars, read books, create experiences, grow your skill set. And right now, where most salespeople have a little extra time right now, they're not on planes, they're not driving to customer appointments. You know, I'm working with one team on their business development plans, keeping it very short term, very simple, three goals, two need to be externally focused, one should be internal. Where did you get caught short? And what are you going to do in the next 90 days to shore that up? Or at least move the dial on shoring it up. I think we're going to come out of this better. and. You know, the people that seize this in a way that you can. I mean, honestly, we're all we're, we're all in a fog right now. Every, at best, people are at 60%. You know, everybody's, you know, which is our, it's like a global fog. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything. We can do a lot. You know, for big opportunities, there's so much you can do right now. It doesn't feel like it. It's like, I just got to concentrate on saving the business I have, the small. It's like, okay, do that. But pull together the account team, start building your strategy, start identifying those relationships. You can do that now. And so when this kind of lifts a little bit and we get a little bit better, we're like not in the 60% fog, we know what we're going to do. We know what the strategy is. We know the relationships. Maybe we're just connecting with them on LinkedIn right now. That's okay. You know, just something small and doable, but we're we're, we're moving. So I think that right now people should be investing themselves, investing in their opportunities and big deals is absolutely part of it. It is not a put on the shelf. There's a lot you can do right now. Two things then. One thing I'd add to your list of qualities and characteristics is a willingness to ask for help. I interviewed Tom Shodorf, who architected and led Splunk's growth from 45 million to 1.2 billion. And I asked him the question from a previous interview with Jeff McGee. He said that chief learning officer should spend 80% of their time coaching and developing the executive leadership team. And he said, I'd welcome that. And I think one of the qualities that I look for is coachability in salespeople. The best salespeople are always learning. Yes. they cannot get enough and they're never satisfied with their performance. That's the other thing. When they come out of a meeting, not only do they do the pre-call planning, but they also do the post-call debrief. Yes. Uh, lesson capture, really critical. So I'm very curious about something. If we look at the level of complexity and the time that's required to win these big 
enterprise deals. It strikes me as crazy why anybody would bother to take their foot off the gas, given that we know these sales cycles take three, six, nine, 12, 18 months. And this is a blip. However you look at it, it will pass. And even if this becomes the new normal, people are still going to have to run a business. Like yesterday, $5 trillion went through the global economy. $5 trillion. So when people are whining that no one's buying, what they're really saying is no one's buying from me. And I'm seeing clients having their best month ever in spite of all of this. Now, admittedly, not in hospitality, not in events, definitely not in airlines, but there are lots of businesses out there that the need for what they have to offer is higher than it was three, four weeks ago, and projects are being brought forward. So why is it that people are allowed even to take their foot off the gas when we know that these are six, 12-month sales cycles? Why are they doing that? You know, I think that people, you know, in this sort of crisis environment, people's, you know, long-term planning is kind of shrunk down to, you know, the next 30, 60, 90 days instead of even long-term planning has been shrinking for a long time. We used to plan out, what, five years or more, then that turned into like three years, then it turned into two years. Now it's like 90 days. So I, I just think people are trying, they need to keep it simple for themselves. They need to focus on kind of the immediate, they feel like they need to keep it simple. They feel like they need to focus on the immediate. And what I'm saying, and you're violently agreeing with is, you know, just think a little bit outside of that and think of what you can do now that is simple and is in your control to set yourself up for these big deals later. Maybe you're not going to be landing. Some people are. I agree with that. In the last two weeks, I've gotten uh, three ring the bells from my clients. Emails, hey, I won this thing. One was solidified. Actually, two of them were game changers. Two different clients, game changers for their years, big wins. We always ring the bell. So that, you know, that that is happening, but not, it's not happening for everybody. But with big deals, small wins are really important because it is longer. I'm always a fan of a small win. If you get an appointment with an executive, it's like that's a ring the bell. That's a small win. It's going to lead to a bigger win. But there's there's a lot people can be doing now that is doable, is in their control, can be simple. And they just have to come. They just have to realize that and commit to it. And some people are, and but some people aren't. So this, again, is another bugbear that really gets up my nose. <laughs> when KPMG did their study last year, they identified that only six minutes in the hour was considered valuable when a salesperson got in front of them. So CXOs or CXOs. I saw that, yep. Terrifying statistic. Only 12% of first meetings result in a second meeting. How do you get invited back? So my book about executive engagement, The Top Seller Advantage, there's a lot of books on how do you get to executives. So so I don't want to write that book. I wanted to write the book about how do you stay engaged with an executive over time. And the reason why I wanted to write that book is because I'd be involved with these account teams and we would spend months and in some cases years getting to a key executive and we'd have a meeting and everybody wanted to go to that, you know, be involved with that meeting. And, 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 and so, you know, you have the meeting and everybody came out, you know, high fives. We just had this great meeting in the C-suite, you know, could have been better. And then, of course, it was follow up, you know, immediate follow up. Thank you. That kind of thing. But after that, 
nothing. They didn't get another meeting and they didn't they didn't do anything to get another meeting. And so flash forward, you know, two years later, account team, big opportunity, big account, need an executive sponsor. Oh, we don't have one. We could have had one because it's the same executive. They don't move around as much as everybody else, but we they don't remember us at all. We have no relationship with them. And that just kept happening and playing out and playing out. So to answer your question, actually in that book, every chapter ends with an executive interview. And I ask each executive, all different types of executives, big companies, small companies. I said, what would cause you to take a meeting with a salesperson? What would make that meeting valuable? And what would it take for you to leave the door open to them for a future meeting? And they all answer my questions and it's all in the book. It's all about making sure that what you talk to them about is relevant in the meeting early. If you want to differentiate yourself, if you got a, you know, an hour from that executive and the meeting at 50 minutes, they'll remember you. <laughs> Funny. It's like a little thing. They all said that though. And then ask them to say, you know what, what would be an appropriate way to stay in touch with you? What are the types of things that you would want to hear from us? And you just ask, and then you create an executive engagement plan to do it. And that's part of, you know, this sort of big five X deal methodology. I mean, one of the parts of the methodology is executive engagement. And there's lots of ways to get to an executive. There's lots of ways to appropriately stay in touch, but it starts with asking them. And they'll tell you. It's very interesting. I interviewed Jack Shamas, who was on the board of Charles Schwab, Standard & Poor's, McGraw-Hill. And what was really fascinating was that he said that he was more nervous than the salesperson because he was carrying you know, hundreds of millions of P&L, billions of P&L, and he needed a solution to his problem. And the best salespeople were the ones who were able to get inside his skin identify that problem quickly and help him to see a clear way forward. But you can't possibly do that if you're talking about yourself because no one cares about that. No one uh, I, I always rather glibly say it's like showing photos of your ugly children. Uh, to <laughs> what drives CXOs crazy is having their time wasted by some selfish, awful pitch, like some market stall tradesman telling you five pounds, four pounds, three pounds, two pounds, only 10 cents. And then, yeah, before you know it, and, and it's this misguided idea that it's about the money. And yeah. in your experience of these 5X deals, is it ever really about the money? Rarely. It's rarely about the money. It's about value. It's about solving a problem. It's about reducing their perceived risks. And you're right. I mean, if you go into an executive meeting and you even waste 20% of that meeting, you're not going back. That door is not staying open. If you go over the allocated time, I just, I, I've had sales teams come back and go, oh, we had this great meeting. We actually, they, he had allocated, you know, it could be a she, but, you know, he or she allocated 60 minutes, but, but we went over by 15, 20 minutes because they were really interested. I just, like, I just die inside. It's like, oh. They're never, never going to give that, those people another meeting. They're just not, you know, you have to be, you have to do so much prep for that call. You have to know what's valuable. 
the whole concept of the challenger sale and 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 challenging their thinking and, and bringing ideas and and you know not acting as if you know what their priorities are but it's like doing enough research so you think you know and then asking them and asking them to expand on them and bringing ideas to them and that could look a, you know different for all meetings i mean it could be letting them know what their people are doing recognizing their people they don't always know that that's valuable for them could be an idea from somebody else in their industry somebody that's doing something really positive that's valuable for them but getting to that value and then asking really good questions around that not discovery questions it's like you know questions based on a lot of content valuable content and then asking them again at the end here's how we usually stay in touch with other executives like you would that work for you just ask them how to leave the door open. They will tell you. And really great companies have programs. They have executive to executive programs. They have, you know, in some cases, executive entertainment things. It just depends on the executive and what they might want to participate in. But you can suggest some things. You don't have to just ask them an open-ended question. You can suggest some things that are working for other people like them. Excellent. Lisa, we're coming to the top of the hour and given the importance of sticking to time. Let me ask you this. What what are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay attention to? Well, I'd be a little bit of a hypocrite if I didn't have a good answer for that. And I will tell you in the last 60 days, I've probably listened to at least 15 webinars. I'm on the Bright Talk uh, channel, as are you. I've listened to some of our fellow sales experts, some of their webinars, others, uh, companies that I respect. I've probably read three or four books. Well, I've read some fun books just for some relief, <laughs> some are reading books, but I've also read probably three or four, you know, business books, sales books. Any that you'd recommend? Yeah. You know, Ian Altman has a great book. Meredith Elliott Powell has a great book out. She's the one that ran the contingency planning session in, in, in my board meeting over the weekend. There's really good books out there. There's really good eBooks. George Bronton, the, the CEO and founder of Membrane, just put out a really good book. I downloaded that on my Kindle. I'm about halfway through that. It's just, I am using this time, just like I'm advising my clients to get some extra reading done really understand what other people are doing so that I can bring the best value to them. I'm tapping into all my groups. Um, I'm part of the Women's Sales Pros. We're 60 strong across the world. The Bright Talk experts, 150 of us, sales experts, all my boards. You know, I'm tapping into everybody. What's working? What's not working? What are you doing? I have literally been on a mission to talk to people. Have you read Keith Cunningham's book, The Road Less Stupid? I have not read that book. Should I put it on my list? You definitely should put it on your list. Essentially, it's just packed full of all the gnarliest, most uncomfortable questions that executives <laughs> could be asking. And as a primer for any salesperson, even if you're just emulating the framework and the structure, it's really valuable. Okay. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Lisa, age 23, how to avoid a lifetime of misery and self-sabotage. What would you advise her? So that's pretty funny because I have a daughter that's 23, so I can sort of picture that. I, when I was 23, I was a young Xerox account executive. 
And the golden ticket is just be open, be flexible, keep trying to get better and, you know, really kind of hone your craft, whatever that is, sales leadership, sales management, executive sales management, sales people. I did that, but I didn't always do it. You know, wasn't, I didn't, I haven't done that for the past, you know, consistently for the past 25 years, but, but I certainly have done some of that. So, you know, looking back, you could always be better and different. And I think that's, that's the path is, you know, just always be looking to grow. And because I'm so planful and process oriented, flexibility is what a little more flexibility would have been nicer. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So final question then, what what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? My biggest struggle is, you know, how can I help my clients through this time? So like many other consultants that I've talked to, I have doubled down on my clients, absolutely doubled down. So I had two of my contracts were live training contracts. So we immediately flipped those to live virtual. You know, that was kind of obvious. But I'm like, that's not going to be enough. So I made office hours available. I implemented what I'm calling a micro learning program, which is three touch points in the course of a week, but they're really small, easy touch points. On Monday, they get a micro learning worksheet, has a couple of ideas, a couple of questions. They turn that in Wednesday with their input. I compile them and give it back to their team. So depending on how big the team is, 10 people, 25 people, 50 people, they get everybody's input on the little micro topic. Like last week was subject lines and sales questions. So one of my clients got a whole list on Friday of what are the best subject lines that are working right now and what are the best sales questions. So I'm just doubling down to help my clients get through this time. Excellent. How are you prioritizing where you invest your time? Well, personal growth and development, planning for my business, coming out of this, being smart, in, including contingency planning, and uh, clients, and then my own business development. So, you know, those are kind of where I'm probably spending the majority of my time right now. Fabulous. Lisa, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful. And I've learned some very useful things, which I should be stealing. I shall give you credit at least once. How can people get hold of you? You know, the best way is my website, which is www.toplinesales.com. I completely redid my website last year with my new book. So both they can click through to Amazon on both my books. There's a free pre-call planning tool. It's a two-page fillable PDF. People, I get notification of downloads every day. People download that. It's such, I use it with my clients. It's really good. Can you share the URL for that so I can put it in the blurb? Okay, yeah. So just on my website has all of that. Excellent. Lisa, thank you so much. I really appreciate you putting the time and effort into this. I know you're busy. Would you be willing to come back? Because I'd love to have the same conversation around the channel and how you can 5X your channel. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, so why don't we do that on the Sales Experts channel and and we we can do that as a separate conversation. Yeah, yeah. Lisa Magnuson, thank you so much. Absolute delight. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please comment, like, share, and please subscribe. 
And if you want to get in touch with either myself or Lisa, or you've got questions, then please come back to us. And if you know somebody who would be a great guest to come on the Inquisitor podcast or the Scale-Ups and Hypergrowth podcast, then please ping me uh, a note either on LinkedIn or at M-C-A-U-C-H-I at Sander.com. Happy selling. Stay safe. Bye-bye.